Coming to you from Washington, D.C., I'm Lisa Sharon Harper, president of Freedom Road, a consulting group dedicated to shrinking the narrative gap. Welcome to the Freedom Road podcast. Each month, we bring together national faith leaders, advocates, and activists to have the kinds of conversations we normally have on the front lines. It's just that this time, we got microphones in our faces and you are listening in. And this month, we welcome a dear friend, Wes Gramberg Michelson. I should say Reverend Dr. Wes Granberg Michelson, who in some other denomination might have been a bishop. <laughs> but Wes Granberg Michelson is the author of several books, including Unexpected Destinations, An Evangelical Pilgrimage to World Christianity, and his most recent work, Without Oars, Casting Off into a Life of Pilgrimage. Wes served as the General Secretary of the Reformed Church in America, which is why I mentioned that bishop thing earlier. He was the Director of Church and Society for the World Council of Churches in Geneva and served as Distinguished Visiting Scholar at the John W. Klug Center for the Library of Congress. I asked Wes to join us on Freedom Road because in the post-Trump America, where the evangelical church has become synonymous with unchristian, and within 25 years, people of color will be in the majority in the U.S. and already are in the majority throughout the rest of the world. It is clear that white folk are experiencing a shakeup, white men especially, and something more needs to be done. Something more is needed to address the questions of the white soul and the white church. So I want to talk about Wes's new book, Without Oars. I think it might actually point the way toward this transformation that the church needs. So we'd love to hear your thoughts. Tweet to me at Lisa S. Harper or to Freedom Road at Freedom Road Us. And keep sharing the podcast with your friends. We are growing a huge audience and we're loving it. And we thank you so much. And we want to keep that conversation going. So let's dive in. Wes, okay, so my first question to you is what was the moment when you realized that you needed to pilgrimage? Elisa, it's just wonderful to be talking with you. And I'm so delighted to be part of Freedom Road podcast. And, and I take real joy in the work that you are now doing. Thank you. I'll tell you, it was in December of 1972. Whoa, okay. I was sitting at my desk in the office of Senator Mark Hatfield in Washington, D.C. That's right. You used to work for him. What was your job with him? I was chief legislative assistant. And so I did uh, wow. his legislative policy work. We worked together against the Vietnam War. Wow. And then, of course, on his relationship with the evangelical community. Mm -hmm. Even back then, a lot of the evangelicals couldn't stand him because he was against Nixon and against the Vietnam War. Wow. So it was actually, it was even back then, there was that, the beginning of the marriage. You know, Hatfield was such a kind of a lonely voice. But absolutely, absolutely. Uh, white evangelicals had a real problem with their brother, white evangelical Mark Hatfield, because of his stands on issues of social justice. Interesting. Okay, keep, keep, keep going. 
So we had just finished uh, the election. George McGovern had lost every state but one to Richard Nixon. And I was close to McGovern's staff because we worked together in the anti-war efforts. Wow. Hatfield had been reelected, but I was exhausted, depleted, really worn out. And I was, you know, I was this young kid in this really heady position in D.C., wondering what I should do. I'd grown to be part of the Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C., which was founded by Gordon Cosby and Elizabeth O'Connor, wrote books about it, one of the early integrated churches of its type. And a friend there had said, Wes, sometime you should go to the Holy Cross Monastery, Trappist Monastery in Berryville for a retreat. And he'd given me the phone number of Father Stephen, the guest master. It was written on an index card. It was sitting on my desk. And it had been there for some time. So I was there on this cold, gray December day, and I had called my travel agent, and I was about to book a trip to the Virgin Islands. And I looked at that card, and for some reason, I picked it up and called the number. And Father Stephen answered this voice, uh, and I kind of mumbled and said, well, do you have any space for a retreat? And he said, come right away. The next day I got in my car, I drove to a Trappist monastery in Virginia outside of D.C. I'd never been to any monastery, much less a Trappist one before. I had really no idea where I was going or why. I only knew I was beckoned. I was supposed to be, you know, on that freedom road. That's where I was supposed to be going. I had a time there which was life-changing. I'm trying, I mean, I'm getting the scene, right? For me, I'm very visual and I'm, I'm seeing this. And I'm, I also understand the D.C. Politico, okay? So you were not just working in D.C. You were on Capitol Hill and you were working for a senator? Yeah, Mark, yeah. yeah in, in right? the US, so uh, you were working for a senator as their legislative, I mean, in other words, you were at the center of the center of power. At that time, I think you could say I was. Pretty much, right? Because the Senate is like, it's the high house, it's the high chamber, and one of the three branches of government, and you're working for one of the senators there. And in the middle of that, you get this idea to go to a monastery. Mm -hmm. Like, that itself is literally like a 180. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. I want to know what prompted that, though. I want to know what prompted it. Uh, Who knows? Uh, I, mm-hmm. I think the way pilgrimages start are often that way. There's something, there's something within you that feels all is not right and whole, and there's a disquiet. There's a sense of yearning and a desire to take a step out and explore. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's what it was for me. I was being introduced to a deeper inward journey with God. I'd been raised in a very strong white evangelical world. And I was finding by that time that the language, the piety, the platitudes, they were becoming more and more superficial, Mm -hmm. especially as you were dealing with, even back then, the issues of war and of injustice and of race. Mm -hmm. The piety I grew up with just, it wasn't sinking deep into my soul. I I was yearning for something more, even then. 
And what I found during that first of what became many retreats to monasteries and retreat centers was an ability to really ground myself in the love of God that was so wider and deeper than I had ever experienced. Mm. And, to, and, to root my, and to root my inner self there and to begin to get out of my head, hmm. uh, begin to get out of my head. Mm-hmm. And that, that proved to be a life-changing time. It, it led to uh, countless steps forward that uh, I, don't, I don't have to rehearse them all here. But eventually, it led to me walking away from the Senate. I assisted in the very early days of founding Sojourners Magazine. Mm-hmm. And then my wife and I left D.C. for Missoula, Montana, in a car with a trailer that said Missoula or bust. We were going to a church community there we knew. We didn't know what we were going to do, and we had enough money to live on for three months. And it was those sort of steps of what, when I look back at that now, mm-hmm. I say, that's where my pilgrimage began. Yeah, I was just thinking, that really is pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. You started pilgrimage before people even really understood what pilgrimage was, Ameros Americans anyway. That's deep. And so you wrote this book, Unexpected Destinations, right? And it's and you the the subheading was an evangelical pilgrimage to world Christianity. So I just wondered, like, what did this pilgrimage teach you? I mean, that's pretty huge jump because most evangelicals are like, we've got the goods, nobody else does. In order to really, in order to get to heaven, you got to go through us <laughs> as opposed to through Jesus. Isn't that funny? But they, you got to go through us and like bow in our way and accept Jesus in our way. But you, you really did take a pilgrimage to world Christianity. I'm here with the World Council of Churches. That in itself is a big deal as an evangelical. So how did that happen? Well, again, again, these things get to be mysterious, Lisa. Yeah. Uh, but I had been in Missoula, Montana, and I'd been, I delved into the whole issue of the threats to our creation and the fact that Christians, especially evangelical Christians, were mum about it. They had, they, had, they had no vocabulary about this. If you think back to the 1980s, you know, this, this wasn't on people's agenda. And I became convinced that our relationship to the creation itself was in such serious alienation and was causing the kind of uh, environmental harm that that the church was absolutely silent about, and that I came to see that this was part of a mentality that believed, and I'll say, especially white men of power have the duty to dominate the earth. Yes. It was a Christian duty, and that the Bible said so. And this is exactly what was getting us into the kind of environmental problems that were beginning to come to the surface. When Earth Day was begun in 1970, led by people like Senator Gaylord Nelson, there wasn't a single church voice a part of that, a part of the beginning of that movement. Wow. So you were beginning to see, and I was beginning to write, uh, write about this and speak about it, and it came to the attention of the World Council of Churches, mm-hmm. which had just adopted a program on justice, peace, and integrity of creation. And they didn't know what they meant by integrity of creation. It just sounded like a great phrase. And they, oh, my and they knew, gosh. They knew it was linked to justice and peace. 
So it was really brilliant in that way. Mm-hmm. But they were looking for a new director of Churton Society who could help them on that. And mm-hmm. for reasons that who knows, I went to a conference in Norway and actually the head of the WCC Women's Division came up to me after the conference and said, Wes, we've got this position. You really should apply. I'm going to tell you, you're probably not going to be selected because you're a white male from North America, but you'd be perfect and you should apply anyway. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, and I did, and I, I was accepted. And mm. that introduced me to the reality of Christian faith in both its geographical diversity and its theological diversity. Whoa. Wow. And, and so that was a deep pilgrimage into world Christianity. Yeah. Where I, first of all, began to see that the, the heart of the church was being outside of North America and outside of Europe. And my exposure to, to Christians and to churches in Africa and in Asia, in Latin America, was of such a different reality. And it's also when I understood that evangelical claim to have the truth of Christianity all fit into this neat, convenient box just didn't work in the face of the breadth of these Christian traditions. Mm. Um, maybe one of the more, more interesting ones was my introduction to, uh, to, to the Orthodox Church mm-hmm. and to the, you know, the depth of its not only its theology, but its practice coming from such a different place. Yeah. And, it, you know, the experience, my experience, I think the experience of most evangelicals, it was so cloistered. It was so cloistered. And I found that seeing how God was at work within these various expressions of Christian faith coming from very diverse cultures and especially from non-white cultures. Mm -hmm. It it revolutionized my understanding of God and of Jesus Christ. Okay, so Wes, I want to know from you, what is it that you saw in the faith as it was lived out in African churches and Latin churches and the Orthodox Church that you didn't see lived out in the American church, and in particular, the evangelical church. What is it? How did you see more of God? Yeah, first of all, there was, I saw a kind of intrinsic connection to a deep commitment to God and to Jesus, and a deep commitment to address the issues of justice within their situations. Wow. Because of the context they were in. Yes. I mean, I remember being in meetings in Nairobi with a group of African church leaders, and one of them stood up and said, I was raised and been so influenced by intervarsity, and I love the way that they helped me understand my relationship to Jesus. I mean, you know, he sounded just like to believe evangelical. And we got to know the question, and he said, what you don't understand in the North is how this global economic system is utterly to our disadvantage and is exploiting and colonizing us. I mean, within two minutes, the same person said, you know, and that you just don't hear that in the United States. And so that, I mean, that's the first thing I remember seeing. And then the second thing is their faith didn't stay in their head. They embodied faith. And you know from experiences in Africa and in Latin America in Asia, they're all in different ways, but spirituality just kind of pulsates and sings. 
words and encaptures the whole person. And that's the, you know, that's the second thing that I saw that was so, so different than the kind of experience I'd had. And the third thing is that most of these Christians were not in positions of social and political power. Because in most cases, their countries were being run by people who were pretty autocratic and who were, mm. you know, I mean, they were fairly, not all, but mostly fairly unjust systems. And so they were, you know, they were on the margins and they were dealing with issues of uh, human rights and of uh, economic marginalization. And they didn't think that they had the power to control their societies. They knew they were living in a situation that was more marginal and that, and that their faith made sense within that context. And so that also was different than the way in which my heritage of white evangelicalism was in the United States, where you just, you know, the assumption is that we're, you know, we're the best. And of course, we're supposed to be in charge. And there's a problem if we're not in charge. <laughs> that is exactly it. Oh, my gosh, you named it. And folks, I did not ask him to say that. <laughs> You named oh, this is unrehearsed. <laughs> you named it. You named it, Wes. It's the assumption. The assumption that we, and the we here is not all the we's. It's the white men who mm-hmm. are supposed to, it's the supposed to be in charge. And I, I mean, I think that that's, okay, so... One of the reasons, the biggest, one of the biggest reasons I wanted to talk with you today is because I feel like your journey is obviously, and especially in Without Wars, I think you are really working this out. Your journey is one where you've gone from someone who was literally working at the center of power for a white senator, a good one, (laughs) mind you, but still a white guy, right? To dropping your oars into the ocean. Mm -hmm. And when you, like, I love that image because it is the image of giving up control. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Giving up control. And so I want to know, like, the image that in particular, there's there's another image there. So where you talk about the makeshift shrines that you found on the Camino de Santiago, right? And that they were littered with the things that pilgrims have left behind. Mm -hmm. I want to know what, what have you had to leave behind on your pilgrimage? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think a couple of things, Lisa. First is what is what we have already talked about. The assumption that I'm in control. And that first of all, I'm in control of my own life in ways that kind of give me security. There's a question I referred to in the book, Without Oars. It comes from actually the, the poet David White. When has your life become more than you had planned for? Ooh. <laughs> Great question. I mean, we assume that we can plan and control our, the trajectory, and especially white men are whiter this way. Hello. And yet all of us experience those times when life, for one reason or another, becomes more than we ever could have planned for. Yeah. And that puts us potentially into a very different place. And I had to give up the sense that I could always be in control. And that's one of the great things about going on a pilgrimage physically is that you, you know, you're not in control. You know, exactly right. You, you are really having to give up that, that kind of control. I'd say 
I'd say this, the second thing is that I had to let go of the, the strength and security of those systems of uh, the ego that had given me a well-defined sense of self. You know, the way all of us, when, as we grow up, we have to, to construct, and often we use religion to do this, we have to construct identities that make us feel secure and, and we're able to sort of live out of them. And, and that, that's okay. But there comes a point when we have to then go into what people like Richard Rohr call the second half of life. We, we have to take a step beyond those and let those things go. Mm-hmm. Even evangelical authors, it's interesting, Lisa, look at Bob Buford, you know, started the Leadership Institute and wrote yeah, yeah. the halftime, halftime, you know, so this is a sports metaphor. That book sold hundreds of thousands. And he was simply saying, you get through one half of your life and you think you've got everything, you know, success and money and power and so forth. But you got to take a little break at halftime and think maybe you should be doing something else. I had found that very powerful because, again, you grew up in D.C. and you're in that environment. Or even when I was at the World Council, I mean, that becomes no, a sort of head experience. Yes. And, and, and you have to at some point say, my security and my sense of self just can't be rooted into the world of, of these accomplishments. Of, uh, when, you're, when I was on the Camino de Santiago, which I explained in one part of Without Oars, when you meet another pilgrim, you know, like when I would, I'd meet someone who's there from Korea or from Australia or from Germany or whatever, mm-hmm. and and you introduce yourself. I don't introduce myself and say, "Well, I'm Wes Granberg, Michael's. I was the former general secretary of the Reformed Church in America." <laughs> you know, <laughs> it made no sense to anyone. Anyway, mm-hmm. you, you introduce yourself, and your first question invariably is, "Well, why are you on this pilgrimage?" Yeah. Yeah. And it opens up a whole other level of conversation. And so, and you're there, you're not living out of these identities, out of this sense of security that you've depended on that also kind of keeps you bound. Mm-hmm. You naturally let that go. And so that, mm-hmm. I think for me, that became a metaphor of how we all have to, and again, I have to say, it's especially true for white men. We have to Learn how to let go of all those systems and identities that have given us a sense of security and that have given us a sense of power. These are our stories. You're listening to the Freedom Road podcast, where we bring you stories from the front lines of the struggle for justice. kinds of times that seed books, blogs, magazine articles, and op-eds that move the world forward. Are words floating in your head looking for a place to land? Do you need a safe space to write and share your work with other writers and receive feedback that helps to hone it, sharpen it, make it even better? Freedom Road is launching an international writing group online. Writers from across the globe will come together on Zoom, making space and writing in each other's presence, but in our living rooms, like good citizens do when we are social distancing. (laughs) Then we're going to share what God poured into the world through us. 
Your one-year membership can lock in your spot in this international writing community, or you can pay month to month. Follow the link in the show notes on our website at freedomroad.us to register today. I'm very struck by that last thing you talked about, about the need for white men to be in control and the reality that that is one of the three major things that you saw that you needed to leave behind. I can see that in you, Wes. I see it in you. And I think it's one of the reasons why I just always trusted you. I always thought of you. I mean, it's funny because, you know, you don't consciously think this, but I always thought of you as a trustworthy white man. Because there's something in you that had a depth of humility that is unusual in white men. And so I want to know what's that third one? What's the third thing you had to leave behind? Well, it's very kind of you, Lisa. And that's uh, people compliment me for a lot of things that uh, probably shouldn't matter, but what you say really does matter. So, well, it's real. It's very, very real. The third thing is this assumption that you think your way into faith. You think your way into faith. Yeah. And the trust in the power of of, of rational thought systems, uh, which, again, it's, I think, what white males feel particularly comfortable with. Mm. And Mm -hmm. Because then you can gain control. You can control that. And, and, And so my tradition. You know, I was general secretary of the Reformed Church in America. This is the oldest Protestant denomination in North America, mm-hmm. with its roots deep in the Reformation. goes back, in our case, to Calvin, and then in other streams, it goes to Luther. We kind of know the story. Uh, what I came to see, and I'll tell you, this was kind of a, I mean, it was a, it was sort of a risky, I guess. I mean, it, it's going to say a risky thing to write about, but on the other hand, it doesn't matter because my only employer right now is Social Security, so no one's paying me. So <laughs> I can kind of say what I want. You know? Okay. <laughs> but the Reformed tradition, as it rebelled against the corruption and the sense of, of uh, dogma and, and really oppressive doctrine that they saw in the existing church at that time, they then had to retreat into some form of, of security in order to say, well, okay, well, what do we believe? Mm-hmm. And so they did that by writing confessions. And they wrote historic confessions of faith, which became the foundation stones of various denominational traditions. Mm-hmm. And of course, each one was supposed to be the definitive confession that got it all right. But in, in the years between about, I write about this, about 1520 and 1650, there were between 40 and 50 definitive confessions that got it all right. Wow. <laughs> all, you know, conf- you know they're, they're conflicting with one another. But, right. you know, in our case, Reformed Church in America, I mean, once you get, you know, there's certain things that you kind of sort of set as basic, like the Apostles' Creed and so forth. But then you get in to the Belgic Confession and the Canons of Dort and the Heidelberg. Those happen to be our big three. If you're Lutheran, you get into the Augsburg Confession. If you're Presbyterian, it's the Westminster Confession, et cetera, et cetera. And what all these do is that they try to put faith into a box. 
Yes. That's all tidy and wrapped up. And so the, the assumption is that if you give mental assent to these propositions that are in this box, then you're okay. And, you know, okay, I can understand historically why those needed to be developed. Mm. What I can't understand is why people could believe and do believe that there's only this way to get it right. And it's got to be within that box. And anyone who's not in that box has got it wrong. And that then becomes the justification for division and for enmity and, and originally for violence. I mean, you know, Reformed Christians drowned Anabaptists. Whoa. So that, I mean, that, that's the third thing that I had to leave behind. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> You're blowing my mind. Okay, so hold on. I didn't even know about the drowning, the Anabaptist thing. I didn't, I knew that they suffered. I didn't know they suffered at Reformed Christians' hands. I yeah. thought they were suffering from, from the hands of Catholics, or the Catholic Church or the Episcopal Church of England or something like that. Like, I didn't realize it was the Reformed Church. So, okay. So, you said something that actually I wanted to stop you a little bit ways back because you said you could understand why they had to make these confessions at the time. And I think it's important that we understand that so that we understand, because unless we understand that, we think of them as like just doctrine, like, you know what I mean? Like yeah. Yeah. doctrine that was just went poof into the world and and you have to believe this. and But there's not like a, a context. It didn't come from something for something. So what was the for? It was for well, what? You know, I'm so glad, Lisa, because that's so important. You have to understand. You had these early reformers, uh, you know, Luther and Calvin and uh, Zwingli and uh, Jonathan even earlier, Jonathan Huss. And, and they were saying that the only system of the church that was known and experienced in Western culture, okay, the, the only way the church was in their culture was wrong. It was wrong. I mean, that's an astonishing thing to say. Wow. You know, we, 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 it's hard for us to get back into that mindset because of you know, all the diversity of, of Christianity. Day. But there was, you go to other parts of the world, you could find other Expression of church. Oh, I see. So are you saying that at the time that these confessions came to be, there was really only one way that the church yeah, was absolutely. in all of Europe? And how, what was that way? Was it was it, it was it was today what we call the Catholic Church. It was okay. not, you know, there wasn't a Catholic church, but there was just the church back then. It was then. the church, and that was the way it was, it was done. Ah. It was the church. It was the way it was done. And so the reformers were questioning all their system, their power, their authority the way they thought theologically, what they thought about God. I mean, it was absolutely revolutionary, which we often, you know, we sometimes we just think, oh, yeah, they, the, the reformers just believe that you're saved by grace instead of by works, you know. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know? Right. But no, they were overthrowing a whole system. They were overthrowing an empire. They were overthrowing an empire. They really were. A religious empire. It's a marvelous story in Christian history. Wow. But once they did that, they had to say, well, then, okay, what does define us? What do we believe? And, and they had to find a safe harbor. Uh. And, and to find that safe harbor, they had to 
they had to wrap their faith up in a set of propositions where they could give to others and say, we reject what is the church because this is what we believe. Okay. That's what that's what gave rise to the confessions. So this is the thing. Actually, it's funny because next month, this recording will come out in December. And the next month in January, there'll be a film that's coming out, a documentary that I'm sure you're a part of that is celebrating the 500 years after the Reformation and yeah. also asking what's the next 500 years. Right, well, right. I was also in that film. And I remember when they asked me, this one question they asked me, and it's haunted me ever since. And and there's a, my response was really from the gut. And I, I'm not a scholar like you, so not at least a scholar of the church history, although, you know, American church history, I know a lot about. Sure. But, you know, world church history, I'm not that scholar. But I do have a real clear sense now that the church, like you say, is much bigger than us. And not only that, but the thing that blew my mind when I thought about it was that the church comes from a people who were brown and colonized and serially enslaved by empire. Mm -hmm. And yet the people who have assumed the right of control of what we believe in the church come from the halls of empire. Mm -hmm. So it, it just, I was thinking, you know, look, okay, the first 500 years were about like de disintegration, de not desegregation, but you know what I mean, disintegration of the church, all having it be one thing. Then the next 500 years is going to be about decolonization of the church. It has to be because it feels to me like Jesus himself has been colonized. Mm -hmm. Jesus was colonized. Brown, mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Jesus was colonized and by white empire, no less. Mm -hmm. So when we get told what is orthodoxy, people point back to those confessions. People point back to that stuff that happened in Europe that had a context that came out of something for something, but has really been kind of taken out of its context and then laid on top of the entire face of the earth, which is itself a colonizing act. Mm -hmm. So, Okay, so talk to that. <laughs> well, you know, I think, yeah, I mean, you're right, Lisa. You have to kind of trace the trajectory here because as the streams of the Reformation went into Northern Europe and as new churches were formed and grew up, they became the Reformed churches and what then was the Netherlands. They went to Scotland. They became the Presbyterian churches in Germany. They became what today we know as the Lutheran churches. It goes on and on. But those became forces governed by white men, which were attempting to put a new kind of control over their societies. Wow. You see, particularly with the Puritans and the wars that uh, ensued in Great Britain, the conflict between the established, what we would call today the Episcopal Church and the Puritan movement and mm -hmm. all that that led to. And then you, you see the influence of that in Scotland. And again, we, I'm not, I don't pretend to be a, a, an expert in church history either, but you know, there's a, there's this domineering impulse that is so present in all of these situations where rejecting the authority of what was the church, traditional church, they want to establish a new form of authority that governs life. And it becomes tightly controlled in the mind, it rests on certain rational propositions put together in the confessions 
become the way we know faith and you live into it by agreeing with them and becoming part of the tribe that's defined by these rational systems. This is incredible. Okay, so, okay, everybody who's listening, I really want you to stop here and just, you have to understand this is huge right here because what you just said is that the church, as it developed over time throughout Europe, was meant, what part of the purpose of it was to actually exercise governance over the people. And it's and that's something that I don't think we we really fully appreciate today because we have this separation of church and state in the US. Yes. But we forget that we were the first nation to do that. Like we were literally Absolutely. the first nation on earth to do that. And so to separate church from state. So the development of, you know, the Scottish Presbyterian Church wasn't just to find a new way to worship God. It was actually an instrument of government to control the people. It's why even to this day, you have in many European countries a state church, what's called right. the state church. Right. You know, in Norway, it's the, 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 the Lutheran state church. In the same way in Sweden, same way in Denmark, you go to other countries where, that, where the tradition of the state church is very strong. There are some exceptions because of the whole anti-clerical movement, for instance, in France. But uh, many of the wars in Europe were fought over which expression of the church should have that power to be the state church. Wow. So, so would, you know, would Norway become a part of the of what we would call today the, the state Lutheran church? Would, right, right, right. And then, you know, when you, you first have conflict primarily in France, which was between the Catholics and then reformers who today we'd call the Protestants. And there were, it's estimated there were probably 2 million people that died in that conflict. Mm. And then you go to the 30 years war in which there were all kinds of other factors, but at the root of it, it was, is Catholic power going to control or is Protestant power going to control in these various areas? And scholars say anywhere between 4.5 million to 8 million people in what today's Germany died during during that conflict. Wow. Well, so this was not just argument about theological ideas. An example that I that's close to my home in the Reformed Church is uh, the one I mentioned with Anabaptists, where in Zurich, the whole city council had become Reformed. And so they were imposing that. And the Anabaptist there, Jonathan Mance, young guy who had come from this other Reformed tradition, in, in expressing Anabaptism, which believed that when a, an adult had a, a, a new experience of Christ, that they, they, they should be baptized and that they shouldn't baptize as infants. Okay. They literally took him asked him, arrested him, wanted him to repent. And when he didn't, they drowned him in the river outside of Zurich. And that was, I mean, that was just one case of what became persecution between, I mean, the Lutherans are just the same. I mean, you read what Luther said about Anabaptists. So that, as you say, was also within Protestantism. And it's all fighting over what ideas should have power to control. So, Wes, wow. Okay, can I just say, like, oh, my God, I literally have, like, four separate thoughts all at one time, and I'm trying to choose which one we'll go with, because you could go a million different ways with this. Okay, I know which way I'm going to go. So my, 
What I'd like to ask you then is what are the implications of this today? When we're looking at the faiths that stream from that place, from that purpose, the purpose for the development of these faiths was to control society. And so now we're in America where we, we do have the separation of church and state, but we can see clearly that especially within the neo-Calvinist tradition in America, you actually have people who are fighting to reunite church and state through the whole Trump project and Trumpism, which is ironic since Trump is literally like the Antichrist walking on earth, right? Like he literally is an embodiment of everything that Christianity is not. And yet they've really married themselves to him. And it's not just him. I mean, this has been going for a good 40 years now. And, and according to you, even going back 50 years, you know, to Nixon even. So what's the through line? Like, what are the implications of that history, that genesis for today, for what we're seeing today? I think you're, it's exactly what you're trying to do at Freedom Road and what so many other places are trying to do. Namely, we have to shape our life as the body of Christ in ways that walk away from empire. Yeah. And that walk away from those systems of control. Mm -hmm. And that part of that is really a transformation of our whole way of thinking. Uh, what Paul talks about in Romans, the, the the transformation of our whole understanding so that we no longer are conformed to this world. It was one of was a favorite text of mine growing up as an evangelical, but we barely knew what it really understood. Right, yeah. What, what it really meant. Mm-hmm. And there have been, there've been powerful movements mm. in North America of the church that has been trying to redefine and recapture its own life that are not dominated by by empire and you, many of the people who are leading those are people who've been on your program and that you've worked with i think that's i think that's the way forward and i think there are a couple of things that are really important in that and one is that we don't think our way into faith we walk our way into faith, or we dance our way into faith. Mm-hmm. We feast our way into faith. We practice our way into faith. Mm-hmm. And faith becomes an embodied experience. Mm-hmm. Faith, faith is embodied. It's not kept in the head. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, that's one of the main movements, and that's why I have been drawn to this theme of pilgrimage. Yeah. And without orders, because it's pilgrimage that sees faith as an embodied practice rather than a correct set of intellectual beliefs. Yeah, yeah. What was the hardest thing for you to leave behind? I think the hardest thing for me to leave behind was the sense that I was destined to be a person in power and control, that that was kind of my script. I've had the good fortune to do some some really precious and remarkable things, people would say. But mm-hmm. but I I came to see that and it was really the first impulse of this came from when I started making that retreat and then others like it. Mm-hmm. What I constantly came to see is that my life can't be defined by what I do. 
Mm-hmm. It's got to be rooted more deeply in who I am and who I understand myself to be in connection to God's love. That is so broad and deep and overpowering that uh, uh, the best I can do is to simply try to participate in it mm-hmm. and then leave the consequences to where they fall. So I think it's the hardest thing to leave behind is um, I'm supposed to be one of the guys that runs things. Mm-hmm. Walking Freedom Road from coast to coast and around the globe, this is the Freedom Road Podcast. Thinking Cap is a weekly podcast hosted by the Center for American Progress's Michelle Jawando and Igor Volsky. In the current political moment, we find ourselves in full of protests, anger, and activist momentum. Thinking Cap hopes to lay the groundwork for the bold progressive policy ideas we need to continue moving this movement and our country forward. You can find new episodes each Thursday on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and AmericanProgress.org, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also find them on Twitter at ThinkCapPod. Wes, you just said that the hardest thing for you to leave behind was the idea that you were one of those guys who was supposed to control things. What did you gain? I think I gained a sense of being able to live in the present and to understand that grace comes in ways that are unexpected, And that we can live in such a way that doesn't try to have a future so tightly and neatly planned, Mm -hmm. but in ways that are going to be empowered by grace that comes in ways where we often least expect it. But trying to learn to live more in that frame is, I think, what I've I've gained. And, And I think I've gained a sense that faith is no longer abiding by the right set of ideas that I can control in my head. Mm-hmm. I, I, I say in the book that I've lost my belief in beliefs. There are certain things about Christian faith that I, I think are central. I mean, you know, the, yeah, there are certain boundaries or certain doctrines. And I, you know, if someone asked me about fundamentals, I'd say, well, yeah, I, actually, I, I'm probably a Orthodox Christian in terms of the, you know, the, the basics. Mm-hmm. But I mean, my goodness, how could we ever get into this place of thinking that it's what goes on in our, in our heads that will control our eternal destiny? Mm-hmm. And, and that can give us what we need. Richard Rohr has a great quote. You know, he says, wisdom is not a result of mental effort. Mm. wisdom is not a result of mental effort. Yeah. The tradition I grew up in, because I'm smart, because I did well in school, you know, Mm -hmm. mental effort that would make me really wise. Well, Mm -hmm. no, not so much. 
it's it's learning how to relinquish the core of myself and learning how to live in the practices of faith. That's what brings wisdom. And you know, I I, I like to um, at this stage of my life. I was on a retreat a year ago, well, end of the year thing. Group from our church and was asked this question: What's what's the word that you'd like to use to describe yourself? as you think about going forward. And I thought about it and I said, elder. And I didn't mean, I didn't mean like an elder in a reformed church. Right, right. <laughs> Who's kind of running things. Oh, elder. exactly, yeah. Yeah, I meant elder like in a Native American tribe. Yeah. Uh, I'm an elder like in, uh, frankly, in, in many non-Western cultures mm-hmm. where a, a person is is respected, may be respected, because of, of things they have to offer out of their life experience. And that kind of wisdom, it may or may not be accepted. It doesn't really matter to the elder whether it is or isn't. It's simply offered. I, I've tried to live more into that kind of role, Lisa. Wow. I'm thinking now about your book. Um, is it from Times Square to Timbuktu? Or is yes. it reversed? So from well, Times Square to Timbuktu. Yeah. And you were talking in that book, and I know that you wrote that book after your time at the Library of Congress doing a lot of that research about world demographics and and also the demographics of the church. And you you did work looking at the shifting demographics that the majority of the church is now in the Southern Hemisphere and in Africa and Latin America and in the indigenous church all all over the world. And so I'm wondering... What, with those shifting demographics, what do you understand that white male leaders will need to leave behind as we all wade into this 21st century world and church? Well, I think we have to leave behind this sense that, first of all, uh, that we have an entitlement, that we have an entitlement, that we're supposed to be the ones in power. Mm-hmm. I think secondly, we have to leave behind a trust in rational power and ability to be the final determinant of decisions. That's I mean, true. you know, I think it's important that we think carefully about things, mm-hmm. but it's this trust in rational systems to to really determine outcomes that keeps things in the head and that doesn't take account of the broader range of of human experience that's so important i think i I think that's the second thing that white men have to leave behind and i also think they have to leave behind a mindset that puts them in control both over others and over the earth the systems of what of what you would call white patriarchy yeah uh, the, the systems that make us assume it's our job to dominate and control the earth, and that with that historically, intrinsically, has been to dominate and control people of color, to dominate and control women, to dominate and control Native people. It's, it's, it's all of a piece. Can I add something that white men have dominated? God. 
Yep. The white men have dominated and controlled God mm-hmm. because they put God in that box and said, God right. can't go outside of that box. And God right. looks like this and God thinks like this and God, you know, so that basically they're trying to control God. No, I think, I think so. It's, it's, it's a God who's safe. To them. To them. Exactly. And, and it's the, you know, by contrast, it's a kind of, and again, I think you, you, you see this on pilgrimage. It's a kind of reckless spirituality mm-hmm. that I think we're more called to. And I think that really is, you don't have to go much further than the book of Acts to find example after example after example of reckless spirituality as contrasted with these safe, systems of piety that you know we can feel comfortable with i think that's as necessary and and with that comes a, a re-enchantment of the world of uh, uh, you know the way in which again uh, again it's this whole system of white male religious power and you could trace it from the res from, from the reformation mm-hmm. that emptied the earth of spiritual significance. I'll give you a simple example. You look Ooh, at Lord. Okay, keep going. You look at the Westminster Confession, and there's a Westminster uh, Directory of Worship, which was passed by the Scottish Parliament, went to every congregation, and there's one phrase in it that says, "As no place is worthy of sacred significance," meaning. That, you know, they're responding to all the Catholic saints and places. And, of course, they all rejected pilgrimage. But they're saying, no, you know, spiritual significance does not reside in any place. It's near wow. you go to a big cathedral. You don't have. Well, what is what what did that do? It emptied the world of its spiritual connection to God. And, and it's then, anti-biblical. I mean, it's exactly, literally. It exactly. And then it took. Wow. The it you know it, it took what came then through the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, which made this great separation between the material and spiritual, and the spiritual becomes just personalized and just in another world, and the material becomes just that which we control and dominate. Wow! It's that whole mindset as well that I think we have to order in order to enter into a really sacramental view of the creation. You know, I have to say there's a connection here. I literally just had this connection in my head. When you heard me say, oh my God, this is when the connection was happening. People of African descent were commodified. Yeah. We were declared by those same Presbyterians, those Scottish Presbyterians, right, who who came to America seeking a better way of living and yet they came here and became the largest the largest block of slave owners in the united states we were commodified we were made to be things that were simply made or understood to give them wealth we were dominated it it strikes me that what you just talked about it doesn't just permeate understanding of the land but it permeates understanding of all of the rest of creation except for white white male self yep yep 
No, I, I, absolutely. I tell you, one of the most vivid examples I have of this that I never forgot was when I, I was in Ghana and I visited the uh, Gold Coast and the slave castles. Okay. These are, of course, the places where those who were captured from uh, the uh, inland and were sold and were then kept at these, they called them castles, right on the ocean, mm -hmm. uh, waiting for the slave ships to come and pick them up and transport them. And we went through and saw the places where those enslaved peoples were held. And then we went upstairs on the upper level where those doing the slave trade lived. And in this case, they were Dutch. Right. White mm -hmm. Dutch. Mm. And we not only saw where they lived, but we saw their chapel. Right. And above the door to the chapel, quotes from the Psalms about uh, all living together in unity and in, you know, written in Dutch. And it's that experience that never left me. Yeah. Because it is a it, it is exactly the picture of a separated world where God is at one level and others are commodified and dominated right below and the connection is never made. And the God is the God that's only only lives up in that chapel. Exactly. That's right. But, but, but God is not God. God is the white Dutch man. Exactly. Right? That's oh goodness. I have I have one last question for you. Mm -hmm. What spiritual reformation will be needed in the souls of white folk? Uh, I think, Lisa, we need those forms of spiritual reformation that rely much more on inner contemplative life of detachment, of relinquishment, of placing oneself with abandon before the presence of what we understand and experience more and more deeply as God's love and ways that of spiritual formation that aren't seen primarily by, you know, reading things that give us the right thoughts in our mind or practices of spiritual formation that don't simply reinforce those places where we already feel in a comfortable spiritual cocoon, mm -hmm. but places that really help us deal with that necessary movement of abandonment, of detachment, of relinquishment, in order to encounter who God really is and what God's presence really means. That is that what then opens us up to relationships with all of God's children and to the experiences that have been so present with them and been so different than our experience. The conversations leaders have on the road to justice. This is the Freedom Road podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The Freedom Road podcast is recorded in Washington, D.C. This episode was engineered and edited by David Dalt of Sandberg Media. Freedom Road podcast is produced by Freedom Road LLC. We consult, coach, train, and design experiences that bring common understanding, common commitment, and lead to common action. You can find out more about our work at our website, freedomroad.com. 
us. Stay in the know by signing up for updates. And we promise we don't flood your inbox. We really won't do that. Now, I want to just say that we are entering into the Advent season. In fact, we're here. We're in the middle of the Advent season. And what Wes talked about in this segment, I don't think it's actually only for white men. I think it's most particularly for white men. I think that the need for it is held in most concentrated form for white men. But the reality is, is that the European church, the Western church has shaped much of the church around the world. And so as we all begin to understand the roots of the faith traditions that we hold dear, I think we all have to do that deep interrogation work and perhaps even engage in the spiritual reformation that Wes Granberg Michelson shared with us is necessary. So we invite you to listen again next month. We invite you to re-listen to this and to share it with your friends. I really do believe that this conversation is one that has the potential to do some healing. New episodes drop around the first week of every month. So we invite you to join us again for the conversation on Freedom Road. <laughs>